0: From the University of Notre Dame, these are Notre Dame's stories. In this episode, Heavenly Realms. We're closer than ever to knowing whether life exists on other planets. A Notre Dame researcher talks about what he and other experts are recommending to find the answer in the next 20 years. And what can be done at the moment a life passes from this world to the next? A scholar of medieval chance finds surprising insight into how modern Americans respond to the end of life.
1: We want to answer the question, are we alone? And um, we think that we know the first steps to doing that, and we can take those steps if we so choose.
0: Justin Krepp is an associate professor of physics at Notre Dame. He also served on the National Academy of Sciences Committee on Exoplanet Science Strategy. The committee recently issued a report recommending focus areas for the years 2020 to 2030.
1: This was actually a congressionally mandated panel to to Mm. study exoplanets, uh, specifically their science strategy. How can we learn more about them? So the first and foremost question is what is an, an exoplanet? <laughs> I almost said, "What in the world is an exoplanet?" Which is, you know, kind of close. It's um, planets that are outside of our solar system. So the word "exo" means outside of. So the closest star is the Sun, right? Mm-hmm. We we go around the Sun, and so we've got a host of of planets that that orbit in the same direction, and we call that the solar system, in, including the Sun. And so exoplanets are the planets that could be out there, and, and we now know, in fact, that they are, that orbit other stars. And so there are billions of, hundreds of billions of them just in our galaxy. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of, you know, one of the first steps to, to trying to find uh, other worlds is, well, if we go around a star, then maybe these other planets might orbit around other stars. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we look. This is kind of an, an age-old question uh, in some sense. Hundreds of years or going back thousands of years to historians, are are we alone? And and that's one of the the, the big questions that we pose in the document. It was at least the overarching theme and, and a lot of the reasons why people were there studying this field in the first place on, on a personal level. Um, you know, that question we just kind of pondered for a very long <laughs> time, you know, eons. Um But in 1995, we had the first inclinations and detections, robust detections of planets orbiting other stars, and Mm. it kind of trickled along with the technology and things started to improve gradually. And then there was a real um, kind of moment or event that happened in 2009, which was the launch of a space mission called Kepler that, that NASA led. And um, Kepler had this amazing ability to look at many stars all at the same time. And so we call that like multiplexing. And so Kepler looked at um, 100,000 stars hmm. with an unblinking eye, and it started to tell us the statistics of hmm. these worlds. You know, from 1995 to 2009, things started to well, the the field was born. Hmm. And that's when I was in graduate school and started to to study this in a very serious way. It was kind of I mean, for lack of a better description, kind of a crackpot <laughs> you know, area earlier than, than nineteen ninety five, you were considered maybe a little bit wacky or crazy if you were trying to find an exoplanet, you know, that's just something that we pontificate about, nothing that we study seriously.
0: But I'm sure Galileo, Copernicus, all of them were crackpots at one point or another too. That's right. That's
1: <laughs> right. You know, and and you have to be able to, and and willing to go out on on a, on, on a ledge uh, at, at times. And so then in 2009 there was this really strong upturn in just the number of detections, and then the analysis that you could do statistically from all of those worlds. Mm-hmm. You're no. You know, you're no longer in the small number statistics regime. You're actually saying, I see trends here in the data in period or mass uh, or, you know, other relevant physical properties.
0: So do I have this right that Kepler in 2009 made this field of study real in a lot of ways, but a lot of those ways were data-driven, so readings Mm -hmm. of different things. Mm -hmm. What we're looking at now is what can we actually see?
1: Yeah, that's what we set as a priority. So as astrophysicists, we extract every ounce of information we possibly can from the data. In this case, it's a time series. It's saying the brightness of the star is such and such. Oh, I see this dip. And then I see it repeat again. Oh, wait a second. It's not periodic. Oh, that just means there's another planet there. And that's kind of how the, the thought process goes. Is, oh, there's two periods there. Oh, and one of them is in the, in the habitable zone. That means that it's not too close to the star. It's getting burned up. It's not too far away that it's you know, freezing, but it may have a temperate climate, perhaps. Mm. Let's figure out what it's made out of, and that you know, gives you another mm. direction. Uh, but yeah, we are um, one of the main recommendations, the top one, in fact— is, hey, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of this work now well, over a decade and a half. And um, we really think that now is the time to launch a mission to try to see the planets directly, uh, a pale blue dot, as Carl Sagan described it. It's really um, grandiose and, and fun to think about when you, when you, when you work in this field, you're ultimately doing physics. And so the physics questions that lead to you to to recommend something or say, you know, this is what we should do has to be quantitative. And so you, you think of first the easiest ways to do things, and then you only make it challenging if necessary. So why don't we try to image an Earth-like planet tonight, you know, from the, the telescope on campus here? Well, there's a couple problems, <laughs> <laughs> right? First, you need to be able to spatially separate out the light from the planet and the star so that they're distinct sources uh, so that you can isolate their signals because we can study the star but if you want to study the planet then you have to kind of zoom in on on what it's doing and the problem is not just spatial resolution so the telescope here on on campus is probably too small to do that um, but it's also 10 billion times fainter than the star so it's trying to Uh, you know, image a a firefly next to a lighthouse or or something Mm. like that from far away. And so those two problems combined make it actually, for an Earth-like planet, impossible to do from the ground. And that's because the atmosphere distorts the light as it comes in. So that's the third problem is the light comes in and you try to separate it. You can try to maybe block out One of the star, the star, so that you can see the planet or planets. But whenever you smear the light around from the star, which is already a factor of 10 billion brighter, you just exacerbate the problem. And so immediately as a physicist, you're thinking, we need to go to space. And that immediately makes it more expensive. Um, and that's why, you know, federal agencies are required to, to try to address this question uh, if, if we so choose to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're talking an 8 or uh, 10 meter telescope, uh, you know, 30 feet in, mm-hmm. in diameter uh, and equipped with instruments that can block out the light from the star and control that light. Uh, extremely well and the mirrors have to be polished yeah. extremely well <laughs> we're talking like tens of nanometers is too much wow. <laughs> surface error you know so it's <laughs> very challenging and that's why um, we have to think on time scales the physics hmm. dictates that you need a big telescope in space and it has to have exquisite pointing and exquisitely polished mirrors and it has to block out the starlight to one part and 10 to the 10.
0: So we, we know the parameters. Um, do we have the, the technology, the expertise to build such an instrument?
1: Great question. So um, there are three things that have happened. So you could ask the question, why didn't we set mm-hmm. that forth as a priority mm-hmm. in 2010? Three things have happened in the interim. One is the technology has really come along um, in terms of lab experiments. And so we've learned the hard lessons, the hard te- technical technology uh, development lessons there in the lab, and we think we can do it. The second lesson is that in 2010, we, we had just launched Kepler, literally, right? So we yeah. didn't know the answer to how common are other planets, let alone the ones that might be in the habitable zone, let alone the ones that are the right size to maybe hold on to their atmosphere and and right mass to promote the the possibilities of of life. Um, We now know from Kepler, uh, Kepler's four-year at PLUS study, that Earth-sized planets in the habitable zone are very common, Mm. Um, tens of percent. Then the third thing is a little bit more subtle, uh, which is there's rocks and gas and dust and other constituents of other solar systems, including our own. And sometimes they smash into one another and they create a plume, a cascade of, of debris. And that debris can actually have enough surface area to obscure the signal of a planet. And... We think that if aliens were looking down on us with their fancy terrestrial planet finder-like telescope, that they would probably see the Earth. There is dust and there's lanes and the planets carve out gravitationally the lanes. They'd probably be able to see us. We call that zodiacal light. Um, But we didn't know what the exo-zodiacal light levels were. What if we're just kind of a funny system and that the exo-zodiacal levels were ten times that the dust levels here. We, you know, the planets are common. We spent the money, we built the mission, and all we see is dust. <laughs> so that's a that was a that raised a, a red flag, and um, we now have done enough ground-based observations that were sensitive to dust to put upper limits on those levels, and we've pushed it down to the point now we're confident that. Uh, Indeed, the dust levels are reasonable. They're not going to be unruly and and completely uh, limit our
0: our capabilities if we so choose to do this. And so it's those key, those three things. So since 2010, we've done a lot of homework Mm -hmm. so that by 2020, we might be ready. To pull the trigger, NASA would be the one uh, doing that to say
1: we are going to build this mission.
0: So one of the co-chairs of, of the study talked about um, we'll be able to answer this question, um, are we alone, within the next 20 years? Mm-hmm. What has happened in the field that makes us think that in the next two decades we yeah. might have some some answers?
1: Well, let me just preface this with – a lot of scientists say that we can do something grandiose on a timescale of two decades because sometimes, you know, like one decade is not enough. And But you're optimistic and mm-hmm. the field is moving very quickly. Um, but it is, it is not unreasonable mm. to think that. Uh, and, and I'll remind you, this is just like one method. Right. Mm, This is mm -hmm. so what you want to do is let's say that you've launched a mission and you detect the 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 pale blue dot, the little Earth like planet. You want to get its spectrum and figure out what it's made out of. You want to start studying its atmosphere. Does it have ozone and methane and Mm -hmm. carbon dioxide and all of those things that we think are conducive to the formation of life uh, here on Earth? Those are called Mm biomarkers. And they give you at least an indirect indication of is there any photosynthesis going on on that world? Um, can you you know, try to understand uh, what chemicals might be out of equilibrium such that one of them is actually being generated actively? That's the only way it could possibly hmm. exist. Um, we think we can answer that on, on a 20-year timescale. Uh, but complementary to that is the, the work being done by SETI right? To, to search for signals, direct signals. of uh, That would be intelligent life, so it's a matter of degree. But we're just talking about life in general. I think that is quite reasonable, even though scientists tend to say, in 20 years we can do these things. I, I really do believe it in this case.
0: So there were some other recommendations uh, that, that the committee made. Some of them um, you know, involve launching something into space. Others are, are ground based. What can we do here yeah. on this planet? Are there one or two, or those of those that um, you think kind of encapsulates the committee's thinking about where this field should should go?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, by definition, they were they were sort of distinct recommendations. They complemented one another certainly, but I think out of the seven recommendations that we made, I should certainly highlight uh, the second one which is the ground. So some of them were from space. Some of them are from the ground. Some of them are infrastructure. Yeah. Um, the one that we talked about, the launching something into space to directly image an Earth-like planet, that's our number one recommendation mm-hmm. if we we're to prioritize things. But a close second is what can we do from, from the ground, which is your question. And that is um, the two very large telescopes that are being designed and built actively right now. They're only partially funded. One of them is called the 30 meter telescope, the TMT and the other is the giant Magellan telescope, the GMT. One of them is supposed to go in the northern hemisphere and the other in the southern hemisphere so Mm -hmm. that American astronomers can have access to the full sky. And um, those facilities have such exciting science cases that we absolutely must get them fully funded.
0: How does uh, your uh, project i locator mm-hmm. fit into fit into this? Yeah.
1: everyone on the panel is you know has projects that are um helping to promote exoplanet work. That's uh, uh, the, the experience that, that we put together as, as a committee. Um, in my particular case, I have a project called iLocator. It's a, it's what's called a spectrograph. And um, it separates the, the light of stars into their uh, rainbow of colors. And um, it does this this technique, the Doppler radio velocity technique, where the, the planet is dancing around the star and you can detect the, the reflex the wobble of the star in time, this is the original technique, but we're kind of stuck in terms of our sensitivity, how well we can, how, how small or how massive of a planet we can detect. And uh, iLocator um, is an innovative approach uh, to building spectrographs in a different way that will allow us uh, to search for and characterize lower mass planets and get more sensitivity. And so the key theme there and the connection to the report is mass Mm. is so important for the planet.
0: Is this just a question of budget and, and expertise or are there other considerations that factor into how aggressively we want to pursue answers here?
1: We, you know, have to be realistic with what we propose i mean why not build a hundred meter telescope well right. we don't have the technology <laughs> right mm-hmm, now mm-hmm. um but that's what's special about this report is that we think that now is the time and so we literally think that the only thing holding us back is budget and politics considerations of mm. you know uh and, and i like the way that our committee chairs uh, phrased this there was um an online broadcast just showing the, the results of our, of our study and, and our committee chairs, I should mention, are David Charbonneau from Harvard and Scott Gowdy from Ohio State. Uh, and they said, if we so choose, we can do this study. We can build this instrument. We can build this telescope if we so choose. And I liked how they phrased that because it's really true. It's, it's up to us. Um, you know, the price tag and there's a little bit of sticker shock, is it's 10, probably $20 billion. Mm. But, um, you know, if you compare that to other things, other budgetary priorities, you know, it's not unreasonable to uh, facilitate NASA's involvement here and break that up because it's going to take, you know, 10 years. So, it, you know, it's a couple billion dollars a year, and NASA's budget is of order, $20 billion per year. But that includes you know, all of the other things that, that NASA does. So it's a matter of prioritization, getting Congress on board. So I was really pleased that there were senators and House members who constituted our panel. They also constituted an astrobiology one, by the way. So there's an, another document coming out very soon from an astrobiology perspective, probably another 200 pager hmm. that describes what those priorities are and perhaps how those intermingle with ours. And so there are people in Congress who are interested in answering these questions, which was great to to hear. Um, and so and so we did a good a job as we can, but that is the end result is we can do this if we so choose
0: Justin Krepp, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Elaine Stratton hild came to Notre Dame as a fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study. She has a unique field of study. She's a musicologist who focuses on medieval chants for the sick and dying.
2: There are lots of good reasons to study it from an academic perspective. The material is very interesting to historians because these songs were sung fairly universally. They were sung for all sorts of communities. And so we can really gain a picture historically of which uh, centers were important and where the paths of transmission were. But there's a personal reason that I study it too, and that is because as a musician, as I was growing up and then at the conservatory, I was placed in situations of playing for the sick and dying, and I didn't know what to play.
0: The situations she speaks of started at age 18. It was then, while studying at Conservatory in Cleveland, that Elaine became involved in a program in which conservatory students would play music for patients at an area hospital who were near the end of their life. On her very first assignment, Elaine was asked to play Amazing Grace for a woman who was sick. As she played, The Woman Passed Away.
2: I felt this wave of confusion and shock rush over me and I left the room as the nurses were coming in and I went to the social worker and I said I think I just did something really wrong (laughs) and she reassured me she said oh you didn't do anything wrong she wrote that hymn right up to heaven. It was a situation that overwhelmed my, my knowledge. And then I learned that there have been communities that did know what to play and did know how to interact with the dying. And I, I started to study those communities.
0: There was another turn in Elaine's story. She was diagnosed with focal dystonia, a neurological condition that prevented her from playing the viola. She would eventually take up the harp, but the moment ushered in a period of profound reflection.
2: But when I looked back at that all of my hours of practicing and playing, I thought, what, what good was all that? And I realized it was those performances in the hospital, those performances when I was able to offer comfort to a grieving family or to offer peace to someone who was nervous at the end of their life, that, those were the meaningful performances and that's what made my, my practice and my playing worthwhile. I was able to dedicate myself then to music history. I thought I can't engage with people in the same way with the viola in my hands, but I can learn those traditions. And that's what I dedicated myself to do then.
0: Thus began a scholarly and personal pursuit that took Elaine to Germany. She studied Latin and studied medieval manuscripts, searching for records of the types of music those communities used at the moment of death. It wasn't an easy task. It requires careful examination of centuries-old manuscripts and searching for certain notations that indicate music. Then she had to work to find if there was enough of the melody that it could be recovered. And finally, those recoverable musical notations were transcribed into a modern musical framework. Again, it's not easy. Elaine estimates fewer than 100 people in the world can do it. What she found was a model, in which communities would come together and do something quite moving. She provides an example found in a specific chant.
2: In the text of this chant, you actually have a type of handoff. You say the community would have gathered around the bed and, and they sang this chant together. They say, hurry, angels of the Lord, you who are taking this soul and offering it in the sight of the Most High. So they they commend their dying loved one to the heavenly community. And that's a really powerful thing to do because as you know, and as we all know, at the moment when our loved one dies, that might not be our tendency. Our tendency might be to say, no, please don't go and so this medieval ritual actually prescribed a type of acceptance now in the for medieval thinkers music itself was considered to bridge the two realms between the earthly and the heavenly so music itself was in understood to reflect a reality of the individual soul, and also the motions of the heavenly bodies. So in singing those words, you're actually drawing a connection between those two realms, and you're actually bridging those two realms. So it's actually quite a sacred and quite a meaningful thing to do at the moment of death to sing.
0: It's a scene that provides a contrast with what is often a very medicalized model of the end of life in modern America.
2: I myself was drawn to the medieval material because the medieval communities were able to do some things that we're not able to do. So we've developed a specialization at the end-of-life care, and that is medical resources. We are excellent at understanding the body and how we can control symptoms, control pain. These are very important things that the medieval communities didn't have. On the other hand, because we've specialized in that, we've created some weaknesses in other areas. And those weaknesses are areas where we can look to other models, such as the medieval model. Other people on campus are looking to developing countries of all places to learn better how to care for the dying. Because in those situations, people still have a very strong community in our situation in America, if someone's diagnosed with a terminal illness, and especially when they are in the end of their life, they're often drawn out of their community into a medical facility, into a medical environment, so they have less time with friends, less time with family, and they're often spending almost all of their resource, their energy is becoming less, and yet more of it is being committed to their medical care.
0: Aside from their meaning, the chance themselves offered a certain unique beauty, Through a series of meetings at Notre Dame, Elaine was afforded the opportunity to perform the chants she'd uncovered with the university's Liturgical Choir and their director, Andrew McShane.
2: This is something that happens at Notre Dame because people are quite open and curious. In that conversation, then, he said, I have a group of undergraduate singers. They're very skilled and they're training to sing chant, and I want to give them some very substantial and meaningful material to work on this semester. Could we sing some of the chants that you're discovering and transcribing? So that's the way that collaboration began. I've been privileged to go to uh, two rehearsals and hear them working on it, and just to observe their, uh, what's the word? They're they're eager, they're sincere, they are well-trained, to sing this type of sacred music, and it's a real privilege for me to be able to hear it. When I came this semester, I was quite sure I'd be sitting in my office doing the scholarly work. I did not know that I would be able to hear the chants performed at a high level. So it's a real unexpected surprise and a gift.
0: Elaine speaks of her time at Notre Dame as a gift, one that was delivered after another turn. As her father neared the end of his battle with cancer, Elaine, her mother, and her sister joined him by his bed. She chipped away at the Notre Dame Institute for Advanced Study Fellowship application while her father rested. On the day of his death, at the behest of her mother, Elaine hit send on her application.
2: One of these strange, amazing experiences that the last week of his life I was writing the application in the room with him. And he was asking about it, he was so curious. So whenever I'm here, it's really, I feel like I'm with him a little bit too.
0: Dame Stories is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications.